Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is uh, Nicholas Wapshot and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek and I'm standing in for Leslie this afternoon. And I've got, I hope you've got two hours to spare because I've got a, a lot of great guests to talk to. And the, the first one is a dear friend of mine. I've known him for many years, even when I lived, before I lived in the United States, I knew him. And in those days, he was the special assistant to President Bill Clinton, Sidney Blumenthal. And if you've been wondering what he's been doing, apart from writing emails to Hillary Clinton uh, since he left the West, West Wing, he's been researching and writing an enormous life of Abraham Lincoln. And I must say, uh, I've read, I'm not to the end of the first of the four parts yet, but it's an exceptional piece of work. And uh, so it, re it recently came out to rave reviews. It, he's been celebrated all over the United States where he's spoken about it. So welcome, Sydney. Uh, I'm so glad to have you on the show with me. Well, delighted to be here with you, Nick. You wouldn't have imagined, would you, that the army of Lincoln authors could have missed anything in this story because it's been so well dug over. But you've come up with original material that others seem to have overlooked. Tell me something about the, the things, that, the real surprises you find out about Abraham Lincoln. Well, it's often said there's nothing new to say about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the, the tower of books about Lincoln uh, keeps rising. But um, partly because of my experience as um, uh, somebody who's been a, a journalist, including in Washington, um, having an Illinois background, I'm a native Illinoisan, and uh, having served in the White House and been close to a president, I thought I had something to offer in terms of my experience and insight. And I discovered when I went through all the material that I did. Uh, beginning, And I, this first volume takes Lincoln uh, from... Uh, his uh, his his birth uh, and his boyhood. Uh, he's an impoverished, uh, oppressed, stunted boy from the lowest rung of the uh, social ladder uh, who arises um, a, a self-made man, um, which is the title of the book, um, uh, and self-made not only uh, uh, politically but intellectually, having spent only a few weeks in, formal, uh, in a formal school, uh, to become um, uh, uh, somebody who served in the Congress and on the verge of becoming the Lincoln that we recognize. He's, he's established all the elements that will uh, flourish into um, the leader uh, uh, who takes on um, the, uh, slavery. Um, I found him... Uh, uh, talking about himself as a slave, which is an uh, unusual statement by anybody, particularly in those days, to define themselves as a slave. He said, I used to be a slave. He had thought of himself as a slave to his father, who had rented him out as an indentured servant until he was 21. His father himself was an oppressed man, a semi-literate dirt farmer, uh, fled Kentucky, which was a slave state, to escape from slavery. He had been forced as a poor white man to be in uh, competition for wages with, uh, with slaves. And Lincoln felt, felt uh, very much that he had been oppressed uh, and that he had emancipated himself. He had an unusual insight about that. Um, and this book carries him from episode to episode in which he... Um, essentially uh, liberates himself. He becomes uh, uh, a politician. He learns many skills and crafts and trades, uh, from being a surveyor to in taking uh, 
boats down the Mississippi, like uh, Huckleberry Finn, to uh, marrying uh, an upper-class Southern woman who is the most political woman he ever knew, uh, Mary Todd, um, whose father had been the business partner of Henry Clay, uh, one of the great uh, American political leaders of the day, uh, who was Lincoln's ideal as one of the founders of the Whig Party. That, that was the party of Lincoln uh, until he became a Republican. And, and, uh, and finally into the Congress for one term where he proposes his first, as it were, Emancipation Proclamation. Um, it's a bill uh, to emancipate the slaves in the District of Columbia, a bill that um, was, uh, found the atmosphere so unreceptive he never even got to introduce it before he left for home, going back to Springfield, uh, not knowing what would happen to him or what destiny would await him. It's an astonishing story, isn't it? It's a very rich story. And what you do for the first time, anyway, for, I've read a number of books about Lincoln. This is the first time I've ever worked out, which we, you've worked out so clearly, explained so clearly, is how his personal experience made him feel very sympathetic to genuine slaves. I mean, people who are bought and sold like chattels. Well, he, um, he's unusual in the way in which he often talks about slavery in his rhetoric. He's um, most, he, he was not an abolitionist. He never defined himself as an abolitionist. He was anti-slavery, he called himself naturally anti-slavery. And I go into all the gradations of anti-slavery politics at the time, which were as detailed and, you know, differentiated as the politics uh, uh, among, you know, liberals and progressives and Democrats in our time. And um, Lincoln, but there was a different, there is another uh, difference. Many of the radical abolitionists were imbued with an evangelical and religious, more than spirit, but a form in which they discussed it. It was a way in which they talked about sin and that would have been slavery. They would outrage the congregation or the audience. They would call for conversion, acknowledgement of the sin, and then make their appeal. This is this is very much the the form of the of the pulpit. That's not what Lincoln did. Lincoln often spoke from the point of view of the slave, the person who was enslaved. And um, he, he repeatedly talked about the slave as a man, as a human being. And even though Lincoln, until the war, the Civil War, was uh, nearly won, did not talk about citizenship, which um, uh, he, he, he believed that slaves, that uh, Negroes, blacks, African Americans were equal as men. He didn't believe in political, in the same equal social and political rights over until over time. Um, and his development is political, it's circumstantial, but at the root of it is his, this firm belief uh, in equality. Um, that's deeply rooted in his uh, not only character, 
but the kind of politics that he practices that also is very practical in uh, moving towards what he called at one point Zion, uh, which is emancipation. This is all fascinating, uh, Sydney. I'm talking to Sydney Blumenthal, who's the author of A Self-Made Man, 1809 to 1849, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, the first of four volumes. If the next three are half as good as this, it's going to be extraordinary. Uh, we're going to talk, after the break, we're going to be talking about the party of Lincoln and what it's like today, because I think that it's going to be a surprise to people, the people who liberated uh, slaves from their uh, incarceration should turn out to be the party, actually, which is probably more racially tinged than, than their rivals, the Democrats, even though there was a time when it was the Southern Democrats who, uh, who switched sides, I guess, and uh, changed the whole uh, political landscape. And we'll, we'll be talking about that uh, after the break. So don't go away. And Sydney, don't you go away, because i got some questions to ask. Thank you very much. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie t this afternoon. And I've got a lot of great guests, but the one that I'm with right now is one of my great favorites because he's an old pal of mine, and he's written a brilliant book, uh, the first of four, actually, on the, the political life of Abraham Lincoln. And the first volume is called The Self-Made Man, which we've just been speaking about. And uh, Simon and Schuster publish it. You'll be able to find it on Amazon very easily or any good bookshop. Even bad bookshops will sell it, no doubt. Now, Sydney, uh, let's bring this up today. The party of Lincoln has sort of gone topsy-turvy, hasn't it? The, the party that freed the slaves is now absolutely on the other foot. And that came about, I guess, because of Lyndon Johnson's work on civil rights in the 60s. Is that right? Well, um, you know, the parties uh, in America, the Democratic and Republican Party since Johnson, have basically uh, changed some of their identities. Um, it's a long process um, in, that involves the, uh, the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, the Democratic uh, Party used to be the party of the Solid South. Now the Solid South belongs to the Republican Party. It's a fundamentally different party than it was, um, certainly <laughs> at the time of... Uh, of, of Lincoln, but even afterwards. Uh, and, uh, you know, Johnson uh, really shook things up in, uh, you know, getting the civil rights legislation passed. Uh, it, and this process of transformation of the parties, um, you know, involves many events and episodes um, going back, uh, not least to uh, we, we think it may be Trump that's done this, but really, I mean, consider that Ronald Reagan opened his 1980 campaign at the Neshoba County Fair where six civil rights workers had been 
uh, murdered and uh, spoke under the banners of uh, Confederate battle flags in favor of states' rights. So um, there's been a, uh, a great uh, transformation over time. The, the party of Trump bears virtually no resemblance to the party of Lincoln except in the name, and the values have been turned on their head. So uh, the Republican Party, he has hollowed it out, hasn't he, Trump? Is there life after Trump for the Republican Party, would you imagine? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, and we'll have to see what kind of damage continues. Every day uh, the Republican Party is being torn. We haven't quite gotten to the crunch or seen all of the events and seen what happens to the party at the end of an election. You, you, one actually has to go through the convention, the debates, uh, and the election um, to see what's left. There is a view that I've heard from some Republicans that they can weather this storm, that it will, uh, you know, as though it's um, they're in the basement, a cyclone's passing, it'll, it'll, once it's gone, they can come out and everything can be restored as it was and they can take control and um, uh, whatever party it is that they have in mind can be restored. That's not going to be the case. The reason that Trump is there has to do with uh, um, uh, voters who support Trump uh, and have uh, put him there as the Republican nominee and rejected um, uh, more uh, traditional conservative Republicans and what they believe and uh, their doctrines from uh, yeah, from uh, free trade to a more respectable political language. Uh, yeah. It's hard to tell what will happen here. Republicans have to go through an election process in which they must declare themselves uh, either pro or anti-Trump, and in either case, depending upon the kinds of districts they're in or the uh, state, uh, uh, what kind of price they'll pay for that. Either way. Yeah, it's going it's to be a fascinating thing to watch. It's the, the implosion, it seems, of the Republican Party is very similar, of course, to what's happened in Britain with, with the Conservative Party, where the Conservative Party, in order to heal wounds of a profoundly divided party, has just uh, given the people a referendum on Brexit. But what it's revealed for those of us, like, I mean, I know, Sydney, you're a great student of British politics and have spent a lot of time over there, particularly with helping the Labour Party of Tony Blair, that... Uh, what we come to is a, a, a sort of profound divide where the elite that runs the Conservative Party is out of kilter with the genuine voters who have far more poisonous views than the rather more enlightened leadership. That's happening in the Republican Party too, it seems to me. Well, um, what's, what's interesting is that in, in Britain, um, uh, the appeal to um, uh, the anti-immigrant feeling um, as though, um, you know, the old Britain could be um, restored. There's a, a nostalgic dream of the, the, the sceptered isle somehow by rejecting the European Union. Um, uh, that, that was uh, engineered by an elite. Uh, and so, you know, the peasants um, uh, rose up uh, uh, but led by an elite of people like Boris Johnson, uh, uh, you know, who, uh, uh, very much of, a, of an establishment elite background, 
uh, and seeking to manipulate this for their own personal ambition and power, found, uh, and found themselves all toppled. It's one. It's really the last scene of Hamlet. Every everyone involved in this so far has has been left uh, as a corpse on the stage in Brexit. And similarly, in the Republican Party, look at the primaries. Um, they, you know, this is a party that paved the way for Trump. Um, uh, they thought that they could um, do the same thing that um, people like John, uh, Boris Johnson did in Britain, which is um, excite uh, and exploit and manipulate uh, the base on pseudo-populist, anti-immigrant you know, uh, or racist uh, or uh, xenophobic grounds and uh, maintain control of it. Um, um, for the most part, they use what's called dog whistle politics, uh, tamped down rhetoric. Uh, uh, Trump uh, just went there and uh, got rid of the dog whistle and is very explicit and, and captured uh, that base and overthrew the old elites. It's very similar to what's happened to the Tory party. Thank, thank you, Sydney. Your, your analogies are always perfect. They're spot on. Don't forget to go and buy The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, A Self-Made Man, 1809-1849. We'll join you the other side of the break when we'll be talking to Matt Cooper. Sydney, thank you so much. So, it's a welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, this is Nicholas Wapshot, the opinion editor of Newsweek, who's standing in for Leslie this afternoon. And uh, we've got a great guest come uh, join us now, and that it's uh, Matt Cooper, my dear friend and colleague, who is the political editor of The Observer. So you're getting a, a double whammy from Newsweek right now. It's uh, only a week to go before the Republicans meet to pick their presidential candidate at the convention in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, Matt's going to try to help me understand exactly what, what's about to happen, because everybody's looked forward to this convention as if it's going to be uh, a circus of the highest order, which I guess is true. Uh, Matt Cooper, welcome aboard. Uh, tell me, is it going to be the circus that we're all promised? We can only hope, Nicholas. <laughs> um, I, I, I think uh, uh, maybe maybe a flea circus. I don't think it's going to be the the chaotic historic event that people thought when they were um, when there was talk about a brokered convention that somehow the nominee would be decided here. That has been decided. Uh, it's going to be Donald Trump, but there will there will be an insurrection. I, I think it's going to be put down pretty quickly. Um, and um, you know, from there, I think it'll proceed pretty, pretty smoothly for Trump. Well, well, let's so go always... stage by stage. Who exactly is going to go to the convention? Because we know that lots of people, lots of senior Republicans, I hesitate to call them establishment because they don't seem to be operating like an establishment anymore. But certainly, both President Bushes and of course Jeb Bush is not going to go. But who else is not going to be there? Conspicuous in their absence. Oh gosh. Uh, well, you know, uh, you know, as as you said, the Bushes. Um, you know, I think any number of uh, senators are not going. Uh, of course, most noticeable is that the the governor of Ohio, former presidential candidate John Kasich, um, is going because it's in his home state, but he's not speaking, which is really unusual. Um, 
So it'll, you know, I think there was something like a dozen of the uh, 55 or so U.S. Uh, Republican senators who were not not going. That's that's pretty unusual. It's astonishing, isn't it? It must be unprecedented. Uh, it is. I mean, I think it's it's you know it's a place where it's like any trade show. You know, like if you were pl- if you're in the plumbing business, or uh, or you sold uh, you know equestrian equipment, you have your semi annual trade show. It's important to go. That's this does a lot of that as well as nominating president. So it's it's generally something they like to be at to raise money to you know schmooze to prepare for their next uh, run for office or higher office. And so for them to skip it entirely is, is it really is something of a sacrifice and and says something about where we're at. Yeah. Now one of the people who will be there is uh, is Ted Cruz, isn't he? And I guess he's putting down a marker assuming that Trump won't make it this November for his own presidential bid. Well, I think so. I mean, as the uh, you know candidate who came in second um, in terms of total number of votes and delegates, so um, you know he has some claim on. Uh, at least we'll use that to try to propel himself to a nomination uh, next time. Um, there had been some speculation about whether he would in fact endorse Trump, and it seems like he he more or less has. What he'll say will be um, interesting to watch. And, um, you know, uh, we'll see what happens. I, I think the most interesting thing is going to be the non-political actors. You know, is Caitlyn Jenner going to speak? Are you going to have a sordid reality show people come? Uh, what's uh, Ivanka going to say? You know, I think that stuff will probably be as interesting as anything we hear from a senator. Yeah. I, I mean, so this is, in a way, it's going to be much more a sort of Trump affair and a showbiz affair than it is a Republican rally. Well, I think that's right. He's still, you know, he's now the leader of this party uh, in in many respects, um, but he's still separate from it, right? He still has his own identity. He has an ideology um, that's uh, different than most Republicans. And I think it's, yeah, I think you're right. It is going to be very much the Trump show and not the Republican show. Now, one of the things that uh, we know that we're going to see, I think, is a, a lot of the Trump family, his assorted uh, children from various marriages, and uh, I don't know how many wives are going to turn up. But is he deliberately trying to encourage a sort of sense of a new Camelot, do you think? Uh, well, um, I'm trying to think of a, a witty, a witty right post for that, Nicholas. Um, uh, well, it certainly is, he certainly does believe and and those around him will tell you that his kids and especially uh Ivanka uh his oldest daughter are uh are assets that they they soften him he looks less um well he seems more more like a normal person um around them and that she's especially appealing uh because she's uh, she's not a she's not an ideologue. She's uh, she's got warm relations with people all over New York, including Chelsea Clinton. Presents well uh, as a very you know as uh, helped build uh, the business quite a bit. It's probably the one who's closest to him in terms of building the business. Um, I, I don't know if it's to set up an idea of Camelot. Um, uh, but it is certainly aspirational, right? I mean, the uh, the Trump, the Apprentice, was all about you know people aspiring to uh, work for him so they could be like him, and I guess this will have a bit of that. And I suppose it's a bit like the Kardashians or something. We, we've got a sort of a, an extension of politics turned into one of those reality show soap operas, which allows 
people to understand exactly how people live. I mean, it hasn't got quite that far. We're not living in Trump Tower. But the, as the weeks go on, we are exposing, or he is exposing his family much more to the rest of us, as if to say, look, I, I'm a regular guy. I've got all of these people around me. So, uh, he can hardly pose as anything apart from uh, a multimillionaire, however rich or poor he is, we'll never quite know, maybe, but a, a multimillionaire elitist. Uh, so why do you think he's got an appeal among people who, for the most part, actually haven't even got a job? Well, I don't think that's on uh, that in and of itself is not unusual. I mean, certainly the the, the wealthy Franklin Roosevelt uh, had that kind of mass appeal, and 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 John Kennedy um, to a lesser degree. So I think people who don't have means can identify with someone who does, if it seems like the person of means has their interests at heart. Uh, what Hillary Clinton uh, will try to do here uh, is show. Is, is make the case that Donald Trump doesn't have your interests at heart, right? That he's the he's the founder of Trump University and is out to rip off your tuition dollars and he's out to rip off your money in a hundred other ways. And he's a scam artist. He's not um, he's not FDR or JFK. Um, and and we'll see how that plays. Um, it's, but it's going to be interesting that way. Yeah, and are you expecting any? protests next week i mean everybody's threatening to do things and a lot of people saying they're not advancing giving their plans in advance because that would only tip off the trump people to try to prevent them doing that but uh, assuming that we know that there'll be protests outside the event and it, right. let's hope it's not going to turn as ugly as chicago in 1968 say but what about protests within uh, the convention center itself do you think that uh, people will be uh, protesting against the hijacking of the Republican Party by someone who, on the face of it, doesn't have all that many conservative principles. Well, I think there will be plenty of people, um, anti-Trump, you know, Republican dissenters there ready to talk to reporters. I don't know if they'll they'll demonstrate in, in uh, you know, actually in the hall the way, you know, that did happen in the 60s and on both the Democratic and Republican sides. Um, and certainly outside the hall, it's uh, there. There are going to be protests now. You know, Cleveland police and Ohio uh, law enforcement authorities say they're ready for anything. Um, you know, we'll see. It's not a. It's not a city like uh, Los Angeles or New York that's as used to uh, large scale disturbances. So we'll. You know, we'll see if um, how ready they are for that. And uh, we'll also find out, uh, you know, whether if that does happen, uh, you know, do the benefits accrue to politically to uh, Trump or to Clinton? Yeah, you would imagine. I mean, on the whole, uh, people don't like to see their streets full of cops thwacking uh, protesters, but it no. still re rebounds on the protesters themselves. And so you would imagine that as long as Trump doesn't uh, comment on the violence and encourage it or you know say many of the incendiary things he said before about i need people need a good good thwacking uh that uh, actually it might uh, work in his favor i suppose but i i'm just i just got a sense that there are a lot of people who are not very happy about uh, the rise of trump within the the gop and we just haven't heard quite enough of them yet uh, after the break, which is just coming up in uh, a few seconds now, the, uh, we're going to continue talking to Matt Cooper, who's the political editor of uh, Newsweek, and he's going to keep giving us his uh, wisdom about what's going on. And we'll be addressing uh, Trump and his vice president. And there was certainly a scheme going around 
uh, that was trying to hijack that and remove it from him. There was a sort of conspiracy, which meant that uh, the, uh, the the numbers themselves would, uh, members of the convention themselves would actually try to impose a veep upon him. We'll be all discussing that as soon as we get out of this break. Thanks for listening. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is uh, Nicholas Wapshot, the opinion editor of Newsweek, and I'm standing in for Leslie this afternoon. Uh, it's a great pleasure always to do this, and it's a great pleasure to have my pals on in order to talk about politics. I can't think, you know, what's, what could be wrong with that? Here we have, on the other end of the line, we have Matt Cooper, who is the political editor of uh, Newsweek, and uh, what he doesn't know about, what he hasn't forgotten about politics, some of us never learned. I mean, he just knows everything there is. And he's looking forward, of course, as we are, we all, to the convention season. And, of course, next week is the beginning of the GOP's convention in Cleveland, Ohio, where the governor himself uh, will be attending but not speaking, as Matt points out, which is, shows you the state of the GOP right now. Um, now, let's talk about the Veep stakes, Matt, which is, uh, you know, th- we've only got a few days left before all is revealed. So things should be a little clearer, but it strikes me maybe they're not. What do you think? Uh, well, they're not really. I mean, uh, you know, there a few names have been uh, floated by uh, the campaign uh, that, that most of us have heard by now. Uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, Indiana Governor Mike Pence. And, um, you know, we'll see if there are others. There have been talk of um, a couple of retired generals. And, uh, you know, we'll see which one of them comes in. My my own take, for what it's worth, is that Trump does not look at this the way a normal candidate would. You know, a normal candidate would say, okay, well, you know, who could help me win in November? Or who would help me govern when I get to the White House? I mean, my own sense is Trump is driven by other other concerns like, uh, you know, who physically is the best, you know, is good looking and will look good with my family on the stage? Um, who is not going to outshine me? Um, you know, I think things like that will actually matter to Trump in a way they might not for, for other candidates. And I don't think you can ever underestimate the um, those who are sucking up to Trump to get this job. Um, I think whoever is willing to go the farthest will have an edge. So I, I, I would not be shocked if it's, if it's someone we're not thinking of. Wow. And sort of off the political map again, because, I mean, he could double down on saying what we don't want is a politico. What we really want is, you know, a, a different person from a different uh, you know, line of business altogether. Do you think so you, 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 it could be just, what, a, a glamorous so, woman, an uh, older woman maybe? I don't know. I, I, you know, one would think, given his, his weakness with women, that would um, – that would help a bit. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, you know, I, th- I, 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 I hesitate to speculate on this one because I just, I just don't know. I would, I guess, if I had to guess, I, I would give Gingrich a slight edge, in part because I think it's a way of sticking it to Paul Ryan, the current House Speaker, 
a way of saying, look, I've got, I've got my own house speaker right here. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a part of Trump that would like that. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it's going to matter as much with Trump as it has in perhaps other tickets. He's, he so dominates it. It's so much his show and his um, eruption on the scene. I mean, whoever he chooses is just, you know, along for the ride. Yeah, it may be that the Veep candidate rather like, uh, we've always got it wrong, you know, that actually, that particularly in this case, where Trump is Trump and he sucks all of the oxygen out, and the same with Hillary, in a way, they are so sort of overwhelming in their characters that the, the Veep can do no more than just be a sort of sidekick, like sort of Johnny Carson had sitting on a sofa next Well, time. I think that's right. And, and historically in American politics, the, the vice presidential candidate has been the attack dog. Uh, saying things uh, more viciously than the uh, staid nominee ever could. Well, you know, in Trump's case, nobody's going to be out attack Trump. So, well, we'll see. I, I guess yeah. in fact, each is a character witness, uh, right, for the uh, uh, for their nominee. And uh, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very important. The so. Let's switch over to Hillary because uh, we've had a pretty good go on Trump. Hillary, you would imagine last week when Comey made his announcement that he wasn't going to prosecute or he wouldn't put a suggestion forward that prosecution was possible, that she would have been straight in the clear. But then subsequent to that, it strikes me that Mr. Comey has been no help at all because he's raised all sorts of issues without really answering clear questions about the trouble she has been in and the trouble that may be in with things like the Clinton Foundation. Is that the way you're understanding it? Well, I, yeah, I think it was a pretty tough uh, assessment of this email situation, even if, it, even if he said that he had recommended not uh, to prosecute. And I think if, if Trump had not gone on a, a weird tangent last week about... Um, you know, defending his tweet of uh, uh, something that looked like a Star of David or his uh, praising Saddam Hussein's handling of terrorists, things like that. I think that, you know, he might have made more of it. I, I think it was tough on her. Um, I don't know if it's going to, you know, move votes one way or another, but I, I think it I think it was um, I think it was tough on her. And um, I think the Republicans probably lost an opportunity. Those beyond Trump by not um, embracing that more and instead trying to imply that, you know, Comey may have been in cahoots with uh, the attorney general to not indict her or that um, they should go back and now try to indict her for maybe lying to Congress. I think I think once again, the Republicans proved their capacity to uh, uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. As the question goes. <laughs> Do you think that uh, anybody outside of the people who are going to vote uh, Republican come what may have any interest in her email scandal? I mean, actually, it strikes me that the, the, the most truthful thing that Bernie ever said was, I'm sick of your damn emails. Isn't that true, do you think, of the vast majority of Americans who never understood the problem about the emails, unless they had already made up their mind that Hillary was untrustworthy, which is, of course, hell of a lot of Americans? Um, my, uh, I, I think it's probably a little more significant than that, only in that it, you know, maybe adds to, you know, the, the unease some people who are not devout Republicans feel about her. 
and uh, it was kind of one more thing to you know put on the scales as they weigh who to vote for in the fall. Um, I mean, the specifics. I agree. The specifics of email mess and you know what rules govern what's allowed on a server and all that. I, I think is something even the political press can barely pay attention to. But um, I, I, I do. I do think it it uh, it probably did damage her with more than just died on the wall Republicans. But they're going to keep this, uh, the Republicans are going to keep this up until November, aren't they? One way or another, it seems. I think they will. I think pretend that actually prosecution they, isn't off the table they because they've got all sorts of new uh, lines of inquiry, which Comey seems to have provided for them. Yeah, I mean, I think they'll, they'll keep, yeah, they'll keep talking about it. Uh, whether they can do it in a way that's adroit, um, I'm not so sure. Yeah. I'm not sure who would sell this particular argument to people because rather like Benghazi, unless you're you know, a, a true believer, you, your eyes missed over, don't they? Uh, finally, I know you hate doing this, so that's why I'm going to ask you. You've got a single $1,000 bet. Who is the president in November? Well, of course, it's Obama, but who's the president in January? <laughs> right. There, there was my easy 1000 um, I know. <laughs> oh, you know, I would guess Hillary. Uh, I would think, um, you know, for uh, for the many, many reasons people cite that the demographic changes in the country, the, um, you know, the difficulty Trump has had uniting Republicans, uh, her well-oiled machine and whatnot. So if I, if I had a bet, sure, I'd bet that way. But I, I don't underestimate his capacity to win. I, I really think he can. And, um, uh, you know, I think it's always difficult after eight years of one party in control for the that same party to hold it for a, effectively a third term. So, yeah. I but but that's my bet. I definitely bet on her. Okay, and of course, the the you know the electorate is the Britain has shown us the electorate is in a very weird mood at the moment. So anything they are in a weird can, mood. And don't so, forget those, those political electorate yeah. of Newsweek. Thank you so much for coming on and helping us uh, to understand the world a little more clearly. Uh, we're coming up to another break. On the other side of the break, we've got one, another friend of mine, Sean Willens, who's the uh, professor uh, of politics at Princeton University, and he's going to be telling us all about his new book, but he's also going to tell us what he thinks about Donald Trump. Look. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon. Uh, this is indeed the Leslie Marshall Show, and uh, but it, as you probably worked out, I'm not Leslie Marshall. This is Nicholas Swapshot, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine, and I'm standing in for Leslie, which I do every now and again when I'm not being a guest on Leslie's show. So it's a great uh, delight to be on the other side of the microphone, as it were, and to introduce um, people in, that I know in politics who may have some interesting things to say. The next guest, I must say, is an extraordinary fellow. I've known him for quite a while. He's called Sean Willens. He's a professor at Princeton, and he has, lucky fellow, uh, spent his whole life exploring American uh, history and trying to make sense of it. Uh, he does extraordinary things. He brings figures from uh, history right up to date, and he also puts today's politics in their historical perspective. So, uh, Sean Willens, so glad to have you on the program. Welcome. As ever, Nick. Great to be here. Now, uh, I, I remember you famously wrote a piece in uh, Rolling Stone magazine 
where you said that George W. Bush was the worst president ever. Is that right? Well, I had a question mark at the end of it because it was still only 2006. But, yeah, I mean, I was uh, at a time before people had quite caught on to what the Bush administration was doing. Um, I wrote that piece. Absolutely. And so uh, you'd, we'll, we'll get back to some more contemporary figures in a minute. But you've got a new book out, which is called The Politicians and the Egalitarians, The Hidden History of American Politics which is uh, very interesting because you divide politicians into two different people, two groups, if you like, politicians on one hand and egalitarians on the other. Could you, for the listeners, just explain a little about the, well, the, the notion that you're looking at, the way that we should be looking at uh, politics today, perhaps? Right. Well, the book argues that there's been a long tradition of egalitarianism in American politics that going all the way back to the very beginnings of the Republic, um, people were worried that too great a distance between the rich and the poor, too great a disparity of wealth would endanger the Republic and later the democracy. Um, and that tradition has been, um, it's not only venerable, but it's quite sturdy. And it's lasted all these 200-odd years, going sometimes stronger than, than at other times, but nevertheless always there. It's been fairly um, absent, actually. You talk about the Bush years. It was not there so much um, in the 80s and 90s into the 2000s. But with the uh, crash of 2008, it has reemerged with great force in American politics. And egalitarians are the people who agitate over that, over that, that, that disparity. Other disparities as well. I mean, it's the, not the only form of egalitarianism. There's also you know, racial questions, racial uh, inequalities that are always addressed. Um, but but the, these are the, the egalitarians are the people who agitate, who fight over those issues, um, who bring them to the, to the fore. Martin Luther King Jr. is a good example of an egalitarian. Um, the politicians are the people we elect to office. Now, the politicians very often have or can have egalitarian ideas, but they have to diff- deal in a different world from the egalitarians. Um, they have to deal in a, the, as the real world, the world of public opinion, the world of constitutions, the world of an opposition party. They're the ones who have to navigate all of that and try to um, bring you know, egalitarian ideas, try to make them real, try to turn them into laws. So you have these two groups, and you know they, they sometimes eye each other very warily. I mean, you know, egalitarians distrust politicians, thinking that they're all you know corrupt and are not going to do the right thing. They're only out for themselves. Uh, politicians distrust egalitarians because they're what they're kind of you know uh, wild uh, people who don't understand the burdens of of, a demo- of dev- democratic governance they're irresponsible as they can be so they don't really trust each other and for a lot of the uh, lot of american history the two groups have not been in sync but when they are the book argues when they converge then extraordinary things can happen and have happened in the past so give us some examples of exactly when these two a great movements coincide and work together in, in living memory or in recent well, memory. Yeah, the best example would be, you know, 1964-65. Some of your listeners may have uh, seen the HBO special All the Way about Lyndon Johnson and, um, you know, taking over the presidency after uh, John Kennedy's murder. And there was a period when, you know, Johnson, who came out of the New Deal, um, wanted to make a bigger New Deal, uh, build a great society, but he also linked himself up, his political fate and that fate of his party, with the Civil Rights Movement. And he allied himself quite directly with Martin Luther King. And King understood that that was necessary in order to get laws done, and uh, the two of them collaborated. And out of that collaboration, out of that convergence came the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, um, really the high point of civil rights legislation in this country. 
Now, egalitarians sometimes, I guess, uh, stand in, uh, for uh, elected roles. I guess Bernie Sanders, would you count as an egalitarian, or is he a yeah, I mean, the, the, the division isn't hard and fast, right? I mean, and, and, and Sanders is an, odd, is an odd exception in some ways, because... Um, he he came to politics from uh, you know from outside of politics. You know he was a he was a democratic socialist who was up in Vermont and uh, never really was part of a political party. But he decided to press his politics by um, going for the democratic nomination this year. So he entered the realm of politics. Politics. He had been there before. He'd been a congressman, senator, but he was always an independent. Now he was going to get involved in party politics in a big way. So he's interesting interesting wrinkle in this whole history, I'd say. But look, there have always been politicians who have very, very strong egalitarian ideas. Um, I think, you know, we think of the, the New Deal, for example, and we go right to Franklin Roosevelt, but he was not a natural egalitarian. He came to those ideas very, very strongly, but he was pushed by other politicians who were, and I think particularly of Senator Robert Wagner from New York, the man who was going to be responsible for the, the important labor legislation in 1935 that really, you know, for the first time legalized collective bargaining in the United States. There have always been figures like Wagner who are inside politics but also look outside. Similarly, inside the, um, you know, the, among the egalitarians, you know, there are some who want to have nothing, want to have nothing to do with politics. I think that politics is completely corrupt. But people like King, for example, or the the the, the labor unions. Walter Ruther is another example from earlier, uh, the great labor leader. These are people who understood that egalitarians can't afford to be alienated from politics, can't afford to be purists, have to be involved with politicians, as, as they say, to get anything done. Now, we always assume, don't we, that egalitarianism is really the province of the left. And certainly the, the figures that we've been talking, you've been talking about, uh, largely from the left. But right. I think if we had a conservative here, the, a conservative might argue that there are other ways of looking at egalitarianism and uh, that they represent them better by allowing the freedom of an individual to progress through, through the marketplace and so on. Do you give any credence to that argument? No, well, look, but they, but they do so with the idea uh, egalitarianism there is subsidiary, and very rarely do they address the, the question that egalitarians find central, which is, well, the free market is all well and good, but when the disparities coming out of this free, unregulated market, as it were, grow so great as they had, I mean, the, the Bush years are a great example. You deregulate the economy and look at what you end up with is, is vast inequalities. So, so that... The, that kind of conservative egalitarianism doesn't address the question so so square on. They're talking about freedom, but they're not talking about equality so much. Yes, that makes perfect sense. Is there a dearth of egalitarian figures in politics today, do you think, leaving Bernie aside? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, um, all around the Democratic Party in particular, there, you know, um, um, I mean, Hillary Clinton is an egalitarian. She has egalitarian ideas. She's she's come up through politics in a very different way from Sanders. She's instructive in this respect, I think. I mean, you know, Sanders came out of the left, and he went up to Burlington, and he became mayor, and he, you know, built socialism in one city, and that was, that was great, for, for as he saw it. That's what he was doing. Hillary Clinton and her husband went to a very different place. They didn't go to Vermont. They went to Arkansas. Having worked in the McGovern campaign, which is about as left-wing a campaign as you had in the Democratic Party you know, in living memory, but they went to Arkansas, which is a very different road to hoe. 
they learned that to achieve the kinds of egalitarian ideas they were looking for, they were going to have to operate in politics very, very differently than a mayor in Vermont was going to have to do. They both kind of came out of the same vague kind of place. They have different temperaments. But, 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 but Clinton, I think, brings that, the, the, the egalitarianism that she had very early on, she still brings that to her politics. So there's, there's, she's an example of someone like that. But, you know, you look at people like Al Frank and Barney Frank. I mean, they're all over the place. Um, um, there are, there's, you know, there's a younger group of people coming up as well. So I, I don't think that, that's, that, it, that, it, that it's – I don't think the Democratic Party, for example, has moved anywhere near as far to the right as some people argue that it has. That it's become a kind of corporate tool. I mean, if, not only in comparison to the Republican Party, but you see what, for example, Barney Frank did with the Dodd-Frank bill. The Dodd-Frank bill itself stands as the most extraordinary, sweeping um, legislation on you know, regulating um, uh, Wall Street, regulating um, 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 the economy in that sense, um, since, since the New Deal. Um, it takes egalitarian politicians to get that done. That's fascinating, Sean. Now, uh, hold on, Sean. Don't go anywhere. We've got to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Sean Willens, uh, Princeton professor and uh, the author of uh, The Politicians and the Egalitarians, The Hidden History of American Politics. And I'm going to be asking about uh, uh, Donald Trump, of course, and how he fits into the historical uh, perspective of someone who actually knows of all of these people down the years who've I guess, rather similar to Trump in many respects. We think he's new, but maybe he isn't. We'll talk after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the... Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here. My name is, as you can tell, I'm not Leslie herself. Uh, you've got to put up with me. I'm Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek. And I've got uh, one of my dear friends here at the moment, Sean Willens, who's the professor of American history at Princeton. He's just written, a, or his, I should say, his most recent book of a number of very interesting books, are The Politicians and the Egalitarians, The Hidden History of American Politics. Uh, by the way, if you're at all interested in Bob Dylan, and I know that a lot of you are, you try Sean Wilentz on Bob Dylan and you'll learn a lot about Dylan. Uh, but we don't have time to talk about Dylan today because we're in the midst of a political maelstrom and it's, uh, everything has been changed by the arrival, of course, of uh, Donald Trump in, in the midst. And uh, I guess he, everybody says that he's broken all the rules and we've never seen anything like him before. But it strikes me that we've been seeing charlatans and demagogues and snake oil salesmen many times before in American history, haven't we, Sean? Well, sure. They just haven't quite gotten into you know, presidential politics as Trump has. Um, you know, I mean, Trump is really quite extraordinary in that respect. Um, he comes, you know, he's a, he's a um, um, businessman, reality sh- TV show star who, uh, you know, has no background in politics in particular, and you know, who who's more of a snake oil salesman, snake oil salesman than most. I mean, he picks and chooses from different kinds of political traditions, um, but I think we are seeing something special in him. That's not to say, though. That you know he he is um, he's changed everything sort of Deus ex machina coming out of the sky you know changing everything um, he's building upon uh, a, a crisis that's been in the Republican Party that's been building in the Republican Party for a very very long time 
Um, the so-called establishment of the party didn't quite recognize what was going on. Trump did, and he just came, and that party was ripe for a hostile takeover, and he took it over, at least for the presidential nomination. Yes, so and amazingly Trump, effectively, Trump is, is less a, uh, uh, But whether he has, whether, where all those sort of prejudices, if you pile them all up, get anywhere near the number of people you need in order to win the presidency, I rather doubt. What do you think? Well, I doubt it. I, I doubt it as well. I mean, but it's not just prejudices he's running on. He's, he's, he's running as a strong man, right? And if, you know, the country's mm. been through a lot in the last week in particular, has been sh- rattled, shaken. It remains to be seen whether that might contribute to Trump's support as well. Um, I wouldn't underestimate Trump. I wouldn't want to enter it, underestimate him. But yes, I mean, look, it's one thing to, to, to build that kind of, frankly, racist and nativist appeal and win the Republican nomination. That plays very well to the base that the Republican Party's been cultivating over the last 40 years. It's not going to be enough to win an election. The question still remains is whether Trump can build off of that and, and, and you know, make um, you know, larger claims. Yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating person to watch, I must say, and I'm looking forward to next week when everybody assembles in Cleveland, Ohio, as I'm sure you are. What do you yes. expect to happen next week? Oof. Um, you know, Nicholas, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of popcorn, and I'm going to get a bigger TV, because <laughs> it's going to be quite a show. I'll tell you, I'm friends over, this is going to be quite a show. I don't know that anybody, anybody has any idea. I don't know that Trump has any idea and the people around him, Paul Manafort and so forth, I don't know that they have any idea exactly what's going to happen. He's going to choose a vice presidential nominee. That's the one thing we know will happen. And, um, you know, it's been a, it's been, but that in itself has been quite a show. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But mostly we've been seeing Republicans say they will not run with him under any circumstances. Um, you know, a guy like Bob Corker from Tennessee goes in, he's courted, and he walks away, you know, um, disgusted with the man. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see who he can get to run. Um, um, you know, the, he, he was floating the name of a, of a lieutenant general over the weekend, or that name was being floated, and that's not going to work out because apparently he said that he's pro-abortion. Well, that, that's not going to sit with the Republican Party. It's hard to find someone who is going to be, A, loyal to Trump, and Trump would absolutely demand loyalty, have politics that were acceptable to the broad range of the Republican Party, well, to the Republican Party base, rather, um, you know, and, and at the third time, be credible as a candidate. Um, you know, the people that come closest to that, I suppose, are Chris Christie and Newt Gingrich. Um, but neither of them uh, strike me as a very, you know, uh, imposing candidate. Yeah, neither of them are very appealing. And yet, this is maybe one of the, if, if Trump wins, for goodness sake, this may be one of the most important uh, positions that there is. It, I mean, for Trump to last eight years without being impeached is going to be a pretty good miracle, <laughs> I would guess. Yes, but I'll tell you, Donald Trump nominating um, Newt Gingrich as his vice president was take, is, is a great insurance policy against impeachment. <laughs> well, Ted Cruz probably even more if we believe that. Uh, well, yeah. well, I don't think Cruz would always say Cruz. Yeah, Cruz is counting on him losing, and, and, and I think Cruz is, has his, his eyes on 2020, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, that certainly seems to be what's going on there. It was Cruz, after all, who cozied up to him early in the race before he actually had to fight him. And he's no doubt hoping to pick up the remnants of the Trump tribe if Trump loses, right. uh, which is, I guess, why he's been given a relatively prominent place at the uh, Republican convention right. next week. But now, right. populism, just put it straight uh, on populism. Is there any sort of ethical foundation for populism, or is it just opportunism? Well, no, no. Populism in American history is a very long and rather noble tradition. I mean, the People's Party, which 
came came into existence in the 1890s was a party but came out of a social movement you know very hard stressed dirt farmers and sharecroppers in the south and the plain states and they were you know um, um, feeling basically screwed by everybody by the politicians by the bankers by the railroad corporations by the merchants that were not giving them credit um, this was a movement from the bottom up that um, was very, you know, that tried to get the government to do for them what the, what the private sector was not going to be able to do for them, give them some kind of, um, you know, purchase on economic security. Now, that was the People's Party. That's what populism is in American history. The idea that populism is simply about an appeal to lower class grievances, resentments, etc., really misses the mark. There is this other tradition, and it's been a strong one, and it eventually kind of migrated into the Democratic Party and the Republican Party for a time. It's part of the, you know, the, it's more part of the left, actually, than, than anything else. What, 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 what Trump is, is tapping into is a different kind of, of thing. I wouldn't call it populism. It's more akin to what George Wallace is talking about. I mean, the resentments of working class, lower middle class whites, to be sure, but it's not geared on achieving the kinds of reforms that populism is, is, is aimed for. It's rather, you know, racially very, um, you know, charged. It's, 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 it's very, very different. It might have an anti-plutocratic rhetoric to it, but if you look, for example, at what Donald Trump's tax policies are, that, you know, is his proposed, they're the most regressive ones that are out there. So, yeah. so I don't think that you can really call him a populist at all. Sean? Thank you so much. That was Sean Willens, uh, the writer of The Politicians, The Egalitarians, The Hidden History of American Politics. It's a great uh, treat to be able to hear what you have to say. Uh, let's keep in touch about this because there's lots going on, isn't there? Uh, we are going to a break now and we'll be back in four minutes with another fascinating guest. Good afternoon. You are listening to the Leslie Marshall Show, and as you can tell, I'm not Leslie Marshall. This is Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, and uh, welcome. You've missed, if you've, if you've arrived late to the show, you've missed a lot of very good stuff. But well, we've still got a, two guests uh, to talk to before six o'clock, and uh, the next one is Neil Buchanan, who's an economist and legal scholar, and he's a professor of law at George Washington University, and I'm happy to say he's a regular contributor to Newsweek's uh, opinion pages, whereas political columns particularly, always set off heated debates in the comments section. So, uh, Neil Buchanan, welcome aboard. Good to be here. Now, you wrote a piece not long ago, which I was happy to run in Newsweek, where you said that no one was more surprised at Donald Trump's success at getting to towards the White House than Donald Trump himself. And you asked a serious question, which is, does he really want to be the President of the United States, or is he one of those guys who, like some sort of fictional character, finds himself hurled into the limelight, and uh, when he, he got there, he's sort of quite enjoying it now, but is frightened to death. Yeah, I, I, uh, I guess I'm not the only person to have thought of that, because shortly after uh, you published it in Newsweek, um, I did see that some journalists had picked up on the idea and, uh, and interviewed Trump about it, actually, and he... Uh, sort of, uh, he was a bit sphinx-like about it. Sort of, uh, according to the article I read, he sort of grinned and said, "Well, you'll have to wait and see." Um, but, but actually, my thought on it was was not so much on the uh, the, the fictional characters, uh, but actually thinking about Sarah Palin, who, in her own way, sometimes seems like a fictional character. Um, but she is. Uh, 
uh, obviously a well-known and on the right very well-loved uh, figure at this point, but she essentially got bored with being governor of Alaska after she got a taste of the national limelight um, and uh, resigned her job. And uh, one of the questions that people had was, you know, would she really want even want to be president? Um, now, obviously, she has, has subsequently endorsed Trump, but, you know, she passed on, on a run when, you know, sort of her... Uh, her name was was as as good as, as her her, her uh, stature was as high as it could be, um, and uh, uh, and uh, whereas Trump, I think, just sort of jumped in and said, "Well, um, I can brand myself a little bit better. Um, this is never going to happen." But there are a lot of people uh, with even lower stature who are going to get something out of this. Um, you know, think of George Pataki, think of Jim Gilmore. I mean, you know, the people who are polling at zero. Um, and I really think that, that, you know, Trump, if he becomes president, would become sort of Palin-like. He, 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 he obviously has no interest in actually learning anything about any issues. Um, and, you know, what he would find is that, uh, you know, sort of once he says, hey, let's build the wall, and then there are, you know, a whole bunch of questions about, uh, you know, getting variances and how much money it's going to cost and all that type of thing, he'll lose interest very quickly. I, I, I mean, I think his ego is such that he probably wouldn't actually resign the way Palin did. But, you know, he does sort of seem like somebody who could just sort of be a loose cannon, sort of letting everything else run around, everything else go on about him in the White House, and just on a sort of uh, whatever whim strikes him, decide to, to do something while it was still interesting enough for him um, before he moved on to the to the next whim. So I guess that he would therefore need someone, maybe the vice president or maybe his wife or his, one of his, his daughter or whatever, to actually do the business for him, rather like Woodrow Wilson, who through a stroke meant that he was unable to act out as the president of the United States. But of course, there's no such thing as a power vacuum when the, the job we're talking about is the most important one in the world. So I right. guess that people would step in uh, which you wouldn't like much. I, but you're, what you're describing here is a recipe for total chaos, isn't it, Neil? Yeah, it, it seems that way to me. I, 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 uh, one of the pieces I've written recently that uh, um, uh, that, that didn't run in Newsweek um, uh, was an argument that that I made that that the the sort of deal with the devil that the Republican leadership is making seems to be to set up Trump as a figurehead, and they, they, they're really uh, uh, trying to put in pressure to get a vice president who uh, they could, could work with. Um, you know, so I described it as essentially, you know, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and the others are sort of looking for a Dick Cheney 2.0. Um, and, and, you know, there, what you get is, um, you know, somebody like Chris Christie or so, someone, someone along those lines who either can be the person who fills the vacuum, as you describe, or, you know, if you really want to go conspiracy theory on this, and as you, as you know, I love writing about conspiracy theories, um, but if you think about the, uh, 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 the, the McConnell kind of mindset, what they want is an insurance policy. And so if Trump really does something that is just beyond the pale and actually ends up, well, if he resigns, but, you know, if he actually had to be impeached and convicted and removed from office, um, you know, then what you have is, you know, the, you have the, the, the presidency back in the hands of the Republican elite who, you know, have opposed Trump every step of the way anyway. 
Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's, you know, to be very clear, I don't think that that's a, um, uh, a conscious plan on the part of McConnell or anybody else. But if you sort of spin the story forward on, on the, the sort of, you know, filling the vacuum as you describe it, you have a chaotic White House. You have a president who doesn't seem, you know, seem to be willing to engage with things for more than a moment at a time. And then you have people in the background who are essentially trying to say, well, we, you know, we need a regency here. And, uh, um, and, and those people would be the least accountable of all. Yeah. Now, we've got someone on the line, uh, Neil, uh, Dean from Buffalo, who is asking, has a question to ask about Trump, if he is on the line. Dean, are you there? Yes. Um, uh, thank you for taking my call. You know, I, I would never, ever, ever, ever in my right mind dream of uh, Trump as president. The idea just scares it all out of me. But, you know, this isn't exactly a... Uh, surprise to me because this whole political climate, the, the one-upmanship, the going for the money, the going for the prestige, has pretty much created Donald Trump. And if you go back to American history, the uh, supposed good old days, um, Trump would have fit in really, really well. I mean, they all were rich white guys with no um, with no grasp on uh, the common man situation. Yeah, but, yeah, that's a good point, Dean. Though, of course, it's also true that some of the great progressives, like Franklin Roosevelt, were uh, rich as Croesus. So I guess that uh, there are also people from the elites who uh, really rep do represent exactly the sort of people that Trump claims to represent. That's, uh, anyway, good thought, Dean. Thank you very much. Uh, Neil, one of the, another column that you wrote, which I thought was fascinating because it, uh, like ever, I agreed with it and it was, and it's true, is that what Trump has exposed is the fact that there really isn't a moderate Republican Party anymore. It's not just the establishment that's gone; it's that whole Rockefeller Republicanism, which used to be, I guess, George H. W. Bush was the last example of a president. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I, I grew up in that. Um, uh part of the Republican Party. I, I, I mean, my, my family wasn't political in any sense of uh, running for office, but they were sort of classic um, Protestant Republican moderates. And uh, I remember in 1984, um, my, my father's side of the family was Presbyterian ministers going several generations back, um, and, you know, including my father. And uh, his mother in 1984, her last vote for president was her first vote for a Democrat. Um, even in the, the Reagan landslide that was 1984, she, she just said, I found out that Jerry Falwell um, has, has said good things about the Republican platform, and that's all I need to know. Um, and, you know, that was now 32 years ago. And the, you know, the people who were even close to that kind of, you know, um, uh, rock-ribbed Republican kind of, uh, you know, but, but with a social conscience, um, and, you know, not about hating gays and not about hating, um, uh, I mean, not about hatred in general, um, you know, really got pushed out of the Republican Party uh, um, pretty completely. So that at this point, if you think about who came in second in the Republican primaries this year, it was Ted Cruz, you know, the, the, the most extreme uh, 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 Christian right candidate 
um, available. The, the the person who you know passed as a moderate was John Kasich, and 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 what made him uh, uh, pass as a moderate was that he you know he 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 basically wasn't willing to literally take food out of the mouths of people by refusing Medicaid money for Ohio, right? But if you look at the rest of of, of his his uh, policy agenda, um, including on abortion, including on sort of you know lots and lots of, of religiously motivated things, this guy was far to the right of Reagan, far to the right of anything that that, that we've seen you know um, uh, up until the last twenty years, and now the whole party is 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 uh, is to the right of Kasich. Yeah. It, 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 it's a weird party when Paul Ryan is considered to be a moderate, yeah. I must yeah, say. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, true to your form, Neil, you are attracting a lot of calls. So we've got someone from uh, Texas, in fact, Irvin. Uh, would you like to comment on Donald Trump and uh, what Neil's been saying? Has Irvin fallen off? Oh, hello? Yes, Irvin. The line's yours. Hello? Is that you, Evan? Yes, yes. Yeah, fire away. I can barely hear you guys. I, um, hello, Leslie. I first wanted to say I'm a huge fan. And I wanted to say that I do think that Donald Trump does want to be president because it would do so much for his ego, but I don't believe he actually believes anything he says. He's been friends with Hillary Clinton and... I think it just has to do more about his own persona and, like, who, what would his accomplishment to be the leader of the free world. Yeah, yeah I, I have to say I agree. And one of the reasons it's easy to agree with it is that Trump can't agree with, him, with, with, with everything that he says because he says the opposite of what he just said five minutes ago so frequently. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, it truly is uh, um, uh, ego-driven. But one of the things about watching somebody who is that inconsistent and that willing to just to just say whatever comes to his mind is to say, is there anything there? Like, why are people like our first caller so scared of a Trump presidency? Why am I so scared of a Trump presidency if, in fact, I don't think he, he cares about anything? Um, and I And I think, you know, Coming through all this morass is a lot of uh, uh, things that essentially boil down to appealing to a white supremacist kind of uh, uh, mindset. Um, I, I, I wrote something that, that, that showed up on Newsweek, um, I think, two weeks ago after the Brexit vote, where um, you know, what I, I noted was that Trump was rooting for a bunch of non-Americans to stick their fingers in the, in, the, in the eye of a bunch of other non-Americans, um, which, you know, as far as, as, far as Trump is, is concerned, this shouldn't matter to him either way. But what was especially interesting about it was that he then said, it would be good for my golf course in, in, England, or in, in Scotland if the, uh, um, if, if the pound weakens. Now, if you think about that, the people who he is appealing to in the United States are displaced former industrial workers, manufacturing workers. Those are the people who immediately feel the brunt of a stronger uh, American dollar. And since Trump actually said that it's something that indicates that he understands the effect of, uh, of a changing dollar versus pound um, on uh, imports versus exports, he, he must be fully aware 
that when he's in favor of, of Brexit, what he's in favor of is something that is obviously going to hurt not just Americans in general, but the, the angry white working class base that, 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 that has you know, really rallied to his side for reasons that never made any sense to me. The ports to support. So there you are. So Neil Buchanan, we've run out of time. We could do this for an hour or two easily. Uh, thank you very much indeed. We'll talk to you again. And uh, we're going for a break and we'll be back with one final guest. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 8886-LESLIE. So, welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm not Leslie Marshall, I'm Nicholas Wapshot, the opinion editor of Newsweek, but I'm uh, standing in for Leslie this afternoon, for which I'm most grateful, because I'm having a great time. Now, my next guest, and my final guest, uh, is Dave Dennison. He's an editor at the Washington Spectator, and he did such a great piece in the Washington Spectator, the current one that's up online, that uh, I stole it for Newsweek and I ran it on Newsweek at the weekend and he went through, this is a lot of work, editors don't usually do this sort of work he did a lot of work, he looked at the 13 clearly identifiable ways that you can try to explain Donald Trump and I must say it's hilarious, you should look at it either on the American Spectator or on the Newsweek site uh, to get the full breadth we're only going to snatch of it here but Dave welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show What of all of the different 13, which one do you think is the most plausible as an explanation for Trump? Well, uh, I, I would say what struck me uh, was um, one I put toward the end, if we are talking about some of the uh, <clears throat> ones I put in there are mostly for amusement's sake. Uh, some are funny. But there's one that I thought was pretty serious, a um, piece that was written by Adam Davidson for the New York Times Magazine earlier this spring, uh, who made a really interesting connection. Uh, he's an ec- economics writer, um, wrote about how Donald Trump always talks about the, the deal, the art of the deal, um, and is, is promoted the idea that he is a savvy businessman who really knows how to make the right deals, and that's some of his appeal. And from there, Davidson went on to write about, in economics, how this process of deal-making is seen. It's not really important when you think of macroeconomics and the state of the economy. The fact that one person makes a good deal usually means someone else comes out on the other end of it, what, he, what they call a suboptimal outcome. Um, and he went on to say that, that as an uh, economics journalist, when he tries to explain this type of what they call rent-seeking, the perfect example that he comes up with as a place where markets don't function well, where people get taken advantage of, where some people make huge profits, is what? Manhattan real estate development. That's the world that Trump comes out of. Yeah, and and you got it in one there, Dave. Tell me, because there was some which were hugely amusing. Which one do you think was the funniest explanation of Trump? Well, I, I started with comedy because in the beginning he was seen as a comic figure, a buffoon. Back when he was starting out in his New York days, he was, uh, he was a real staple uh, for Spy Magazine, a parody magazine uh, back in the 1980s. Um, and, of course, they're the ones that introduced that 
term that is still hasn't been uh, riled uh, for comic value that Trump was a short-fingered vulgarian. Uh, but when you go back and look at what Spy was up to back then, you find that they cast they were casting about for a while, coming up with different <laughs> creative adjectives to describe this fellow. Uh, you know, a, a Queens-born casino operator, uh, a wealth fed condo hustler, an ugly cufflink buff, because he really likes his cufflinks, but I guess they thought they were ugly cufflinks. Um, and that tradition of, of uh, you know, just describing him in the most colorful way has been carried on by a website uh, now called Jezebel. Uh, they've come up with a constant stream. You know, it's funny because one of the things that we realize has has become one of the obvious talents of Donald Trump is his talent for insult and invective. Um, and yet when you go back to his early time in, in New York when he was becoming well-known, he was the object of uh, a lot of creative invective. I think he soaked that up. Uh, and that's another uh, uh, influence on him that I think has shaped his way of operating in today's media. I guess as journalists, we're lucky, aren't we, that we have someone like Trump who is quite so extraordinary to be able to talk about and write about. Because they don't come along all the time. I mean, it's difficult to to make fun of Hillary because she's not a very humorous person. Right. Uh, Trump, though, is just, you know, catnip for people like us. That's what struck me. I started compiling, you know, some of my favorite descriptions and explanations back in March. Um, and, you know, didn't really know where I was going with it, but I just started keeping track of the people that I thought were really, you know, it, it, was, it was such a boon to uh, political writers that this man had come along. Bad for the country, I think most of us think, but um, I began to be impressed by how many writers were rising to the occasion. But then, after a while, the other thing I noticed is, that all these uh, explanations that are out there go in many different directions. And a lot of them have to do not just with Trump, but with the question of what is fueling this man's success? What is it about him that is allowing him to defy a lot of the political rules that um, have uh, hurt other candidates? Yeah, and I guess we're going to discover more about this, Dave, uh, next week at the convention in Ohio when we will be treated to the Trump family en masse. And uh, anyway, that, that's what, wrapping it up. Dave Dennison, thank you so much from the Washington Spectator. Look out for this great piece. Uh, it's been a treat to be uh, standing in for Leslie Marshall. Uh, my name is Nicholas Waltrichard. I'm the comment editor of Newsweek. Good.